Hello, everyone. Uh, we continue the series of podcasts on uh, Russian uh, war in Ukraine and uh, Ukraine right now. And today in the studio, uh, I will have a discussion with my Ukrainian colleague, uh, Dr. Marina Shevtsova, who is postdoctoral researcher at the University of Ljubljana, Slovenia, and senior FWEO uh, fellow at uh, Leuven, Belgium. And our major focus today would be gender and all the gender issues tightly bound to the current events. And uh, yeah, Marina, hello. Yes, hello, Anna. Thank yeah. you very much for having me here. I'm looking forward to our discussion. Yeah, great. Me too. And um, I think it's really important for us uh, to be critical and to be like, to take this critical feminist position. And as uh, gender scholars at the background, we could provide some like not that obvious and apparent knowledge or ideas about what's going on and maybe even some kind of prognosis. Uh, so in order to start the discussion, I would like uh, to start with your ideas about uh, the masculinities. Because uh, to provide the context, in Russia right now, many Russian scholars, especially those of them who are dealing with gender studies, Uh, thinking over and trying to comprehend the phenomenon of masculinities because what's going on like from Russian side is definitely a highly gendered phenomenon and it brings up the question of uh, dominant masculinity and masculinist discourse in contemporary Russian society because Putin himself symbolizes really what is called toxic masculinity. It's hyper-masculinity, quite violent, dominated. So in terms of uh, Raven Connell, we can say that it's like dominant masculinity. Yet, while President Zelensky seems to be the, the symbol of new masculinity, it's, he is younger, He is more open to the dialogue and he is really inspiring for many people across uh, the world and in Russia as well uh, for those who are not supporting the war. And it really brings the discussion of what's next, which kind of masculinity will win in this situation and how does it look uh, in Ukraine? What are Ukrainian scholars say about that? Uh, thank you, Anna. I actually uh, was a little bit uh, surprised uh, or taken by surprise uh, when when we started discussing masculinity, comparing uh, masculinity of two presidents. Uh, not of, not because it's you know it's a wrong approach. Actually, mm. it seems now to me very obvious to do so. Uh, but uh, I just uh, uh, came to realize that when we discuss gendered aspects of war uh, in Ukraine with Ukrainian colleagues. We discussed much more, um, you know, the situation on the ground and how, uh, well, uh, I read uh, somewhere a couple of days ago that war usually kind of cements uh, traditional gender roles or conventional gender roles. And we, we now discuss more whether, whether those roles have been challenged and how promising, whether it is promising for us. But, um, and, and uh, I'm sure we'll discuss this today too, but uh, now that you Uh, you know, opened this this interesting um, uh, question with uh, uh, the masculinity of country leaders. I thought that yes, indeed. So apart from Zelensky, uh, I don't know how familiar you are with this. We we have now the whole like uh, I don't know list of uh, new emerging leaders, leaders of different oblasts or like regions of Ukraine, and of course, especially those that are under uh, under fire. So. Uh, the mayor of uh, Nikolaev at the southern part of Ukraine. Then we have uh, a counselor or advisor to Zelensky, um, Arastovich. Uh, then we have, uh, of course, the, the prime minister. For, for me, more familiar is um, the governor of Dnipro, uh, Oblast. Uh, and um, all of them uh, now, um, of course, thanks to their I don't know, press secretaries or PR managers, They changed this, their communication style and uh, they became much more open to, to the population following the strategy of Zelensky's party. So they all now have Telegram channels. Uh, they record videos almost daily. 
and they combine them. So now it's not only, of course, most importantly, this is an update always uh, on the war situation. So all citizens, or, um, or maybe that's exaggeration, but many Ukrainians, right, wake up to, uh, including myself, to open the smartphone and see the video of, let's say, Volodymyr Reznichenko, that's for, for Dnipro area, to see what he's saying. And he's with this, like, you know, fatherly uh, or this caring husband voice will tell you that uh, in our region tonight, it was it was disturbing, but um, it was all right. We are standing strong. Uh, like, go hug your beloved ones. Or he posts pictures of his dogs. So this is like this approachable, nicer, but still, of course, I mean, this is still very masculine, protective, protective, uh, you know, sexualized in a bit because there are now a, lo- a lot of memes uh, about how, you know, who are those men who gain our hearts. And I just saw that there is only one woman who, uh, who whose videos we see from time to time. She's uh, Irina Varashuk, who is uh, a vice, pre- vice premier and a minister on the issues of reintegration of uh, temporarily occupied areas. And she usually speaks uh, about uh, the need to evacuate or uh, opening green corridors to evacuate uh, civilians uh, from those areas. Um, So you're right. And I think, of course, uh, compared to probably uh, Putin's masculinity, this one is less less toxic, but still it is pretty conventional. I would say this, this image that we have is this very good owner, very good husband, father, who is there to to protect you while you can you know go go do your work or take care of whatever you need to do it's really interesting and here i am also thinking about the generational aspect because putin is much older than uh zelensky and in his case and putin's case it would be logical uh to speak about him as the father of the nation which he doesn't utilize, uh, he doesn't utilize that actually. Uh, so there is no discourse of him as a father, but his age doesn't make him more accessible, let's say, to the regular Russians, especially like the Russians of my generation, which are in their like uh, 30s. While Zelensky being younger than Putin, he seems to be much more approachable and not as a peer person with whom you can like talk because his like status position is really high. Yeah, this idea of like being more accessible, what 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 do you think about it? How does it feel like for Ukrainian citizens, for Ukrainians with uh, such young president, I would say? I think it fits very well into this image of or or this um uh, narrative about uh, how how now Ukrainians have tried to identify not identify to define themselves mm-hmm. more like different from Russians, and this main point is uh, and we were talking a bit uh, about this last time that uh, in in Russia uh, people always had Tsar, mm-hmm. so somebody who inherits uh, his position. While uh, in Ukraine we had hetmans who were elected by Cossacks. So and, and of course not. This, this is only a part of Ukraine that has had those Cossacks, because, uh, and, and not, the, not the major part of Ukraine, but this is with what uh, the image was what historically we like to identify ourselves. Uh, and uh, this uh, Cossack siege, which was actually a quite patriarchal, sexist, exclusive, um, and very problematic also uh, settlement. Um, if we decide to deconstruct it, at the same time, it, it symbolizes freedom. Uh, and the possibility to get rid of the uh, the authority that doesn't, you know, that doesn't fulfill uh, the promises, that doesn't meet your expectations. So you have this viche uh, once in a while where the Cossacks can just say, go away to, to the hetman. So uh, these figures of uh, leaders who are there and who actually, uh, and this is also, the, that's what they are promising. We don't know whether it's true, but they say that if people will be unhappy with me, not satisfied, then I will leave because I'm here to serve the people. And, you know, the servant of the people, Sirius, with which Zelensky came to power. Uh, I think it makes uh, it makes him more, uh, kind of, it satisfies people more. So there is this uh, idea, and it, I think it, in part it is illusionary idea that... Um, you know, because still, still, I think he will be there in most of the cases until the end of his term. 
but we know that there is the the the, the authorities are changing, and uh, next time we we can choose some other president. Um, and this is important. Uh, also, like the possibility to criticize power openly, and I think this is also maybe a, a different thing about um, uh, the powerful, like the leaders in Ukraine, also the government, because there was always a freedom of, or yeah, I would say freedom of criticism, of speech, of jokes, uh, and this is again a bit. Uh, I always say that is this a bit problematic because on the one hand we can openly criticize power, but it doesn't mean you know. So there were always have always been these jokes about corruption and about uh, how how all the politicians from different parties are actually drinking together, but then they are uh, pretending that they that they are fighting each other in the parliament. Uh, but still, so there was this, always this space to laugh uh, at those at power, which makes them more, you know, less scary, more approachable, more human. And I think it might be not something that in late last year's Russian leaders cultivate. You know, I don't think you can easily laugh at Putin. It's really interesting It's what, what you're saying. And it makes me think about uh, gender order. Like what, how it uh, how it is transformed if it's transformed because there have been recently uh, these uh, jokely uh, polls about whom you would like to see as the president if uh, the elections uh, if the elections are here many people say vote for female uh, uh, characters uh, for instance there is uh, Ekaterina Shulman she is quite uh, popular and well known lecturer uh, who talks a lot about the current political situation in Russia and she is a PhD in uh, political science, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. Then suddenly people are ready to vote for Nabiulina, who is uh, the Minister of Economic Development and Trade uh, in Russia. So it's quite surprising that people are more willingly choose female uh, persons for leading positions than male. And for me, it seems uh, to be symbolizing the crisis of masculinity and existing gender order in Russia. Well, what about Ukraine? And you have quite, quite strong and uh, well-known person also who is Irina Vereshuk, and she's really visible in public space What, what what happens to gender order in Ukraine in this sense and in regard to political figures in power and who might be in power? I think it would be very interesting to conduct such polls if we, you know, if we, if we uh, had such means uh, to do such research, because, such research because um, uh, of course, one thing is that I think in, in military times, in war times, we have now... Uh, Again, the, the the demand for for more traditional masculinity is still much higher, and uh, I don't think that in the in war times uh, with this martial order, uh, many Ukrainians would be you know progressive or you know open enough to the idea to to replace um, male leader by by a woman. But also because we, we really, on the one hand, this this uh, last uh, Ukrainian parliament, uh, the current one, is the most uh, is the best uh, when it comes to gender equality because we finally have, uh, which is still like a long, long way to go, but we have like 20%, uh, I believe, uh, of uh, women in peace, uh, and uh, we had five or four women ministers in the cabinet of ministers over 24. Which still, you know, shows that, uh, yeah, it's only only 20% in, in both cases. Uh, but we don't have these strong female figures or strong women who, you know, would be there uh, in the case of elections. So I, I know many ministers uh, or and I also know uh, women in peace. Uh, I follow them on Facebook. But uh, the thing is, I think still they are placed in the category uh, of, you know, education, culture, Uh, when it's like humanitarian aid in case of Vereshuk, like helping to evacuate people and so on. And unfortunately, our only uh, strong uh, female politician is uh, Yulia Timoshenko, who is a notorious figure. And um, yeah, she went so she went through all the various gender roles, like, you know, on the spectrum of what, whatever, whatever, whenever 
uh, or whatever a woman can fit in in Ukrainian politics. I remember it her with this uh, traditional uh, hair style when she was uh, having this huge campaign calling, like, there, there was a whole uh, um, range of posters that were saying that they are stealing, she's working, and then, like, they are just telling lies, she's working. Uh, they are, you know, promising she's working. And then, and of course, everybody would think that she is Yulia Tymoshenko because these were her posters. But then in the end, it was, she is Ukraine. But so, you okay. know, and this is like, okay, Yulia Tymoshenko is Ukraine. Okay. It's like uh, Ludovic was saying that the state, it's it's him. So same, same here. But uh, I think she, and she has her strong 8% electorate. They're always with her. They adore her. They vote for her. Uh, but um uh, apart from them, I think she lost uh, she lost popular trust, and she never was into uh, women's rights, and never was into minority rights. She she was quite like this populist, central um, politician, um, quite quite strong one. It's just uh, unfortunately for her, uh, yeah, didn't didn't work out quite well, and then they put her in prison. And uh, since then, I think she never recovered, never regained her position. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but yeah, so uh, so the answer would be I think uh, maybe maybe after war because the, the of course feminists talk a lot about how uh, a female leader would be would be a nice uh, idea. But uh, as of now, I don't see at this level, at the highest level, mm-hmm. uh, I don't see such possibility, unfortunately, for Ukraine. Mm-hmm. In Russia, this uh, jokely like voting for female candidates is actually. A request, some kind of social mm-hmm. request for for a peaceful existence, and women are in this sense somehow are associated with this traditional femininity and like peace, taking care of uh, the loved ones, and so on. Yet it also brings further the question of gender order and what will happen to gender order. So in this sense, for instance, in regard to Ukraine, I'm constantly thinking about this World War II which transformed gender order for, for at least for a moment, for several years in the Western Europe, in Western countries. Still then there was some kind of black backlash when women were involved, like they've been employed on the different factories. They took various positions which previously were taken by men, but uh, the wartime required women to take these positions. And then they've been pushed back to the sphere of private, for instance, in the U.S. How do you see the future of gender order in Ukraine? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so about this, I think a lot, uh, because already since 2014, right, since Euromaidan, we already see certain changes. And I don't know, uh, I wonder if you, you had the same situation with your uh, Russian friends, but I remember in all my discussions until... Uh, I don't know, 2015, 16, whenever I was talking mm-hmm. about feminism with uh, my male friends from Ukraine, they would say, okay, you want equal rights? Then women should go to military. Women should go to army. And then actually it was the same, it was the same argument used by right-wing groups for the, uh, for the game, uh, cisgender gay men. And now we have actually the highest uh, rate of women uh, in the army, in active um, army uh, in Europe. We also have open... Uh, group of uh, LGBTQ veterans and soldiers. So now this argument is kind of, you know, going away. And moreover, uh, another thing is that when when we see uh, how some men are willing or unwilling to join uh, the military forces, uh, you know, we also see that, of course, it was predictable that not everyone is ready to go to the front and um, the front line. And so uh, here I was thinking today before our conversation about how uh, in peaceful times, we had this um, kind of excitement or admiration for the men who are, uh, you know, taking care of for these engaged parents who take care of kids. And the, the guy would get all these praises for doing one third of the job that his wife is doing. Uh, and wife would be criticized because she is not perfect enough as a mother. And um, here a little bit, uh, it is also, you, you can see that uh, women are now being praised for, for joining the army while men are shamed if they don't want to do so. And there are many posters. One colleague of mine, she showed me a couple of days ago, uh, a big bo- like a big board in Western Ukraine telling 
so it's uh, it's uh, the uh, the railway station where basically people come from from all, all the Ukraine and uh, it says leave our leave your children and uh, wives to us we will take care of them and you go back to to the war to to defend the mm-hmm. country you know and then we had this post in social media when uh, a guy for example was detained they were trying to cross the border and they uh, hid the guy in the box with children's stuff Mm-hmm. Uh, and as far as I know now, you can go, uh, you can be imprisoned for, for trying to escape if you're, you are a healthy man from 18 to 60 year old. Um, so, so now, now, you know, you have this, uh, you have this shaming in a way of men who don't want to join territorial defense, who mm-hmm. don't want to go to the military and, uh, praising women who do so. And this is very good that we acknowledge this, uh, this role and, uh, but then, but then again, it seems that, um, you know, again, who is, who is this good Ukrainian? Who is a good Ukrainian citizen? The same with LGBTQ people mm-hmm. uh, who are go, good gays or good lesbians. They're only good if they join military or if they collect money and deliver them to, uh, to the troops and show that, okay, we bought some strategic supplies. So you have to kind of justify your existence while... You know, so I think I think for some groups, if you're a woman, a mother who took a small child away from the country, this is good. You, you fit in, you're fine. You don't need to prove anything to anyone. The same as if you're a guy and you went to, to fight at the front, it's also fine. You, you, you are like, as we said, cemented gender roles. Uh, and if you're in between, you have to prove all the time that, you know, you have this right to do so. Because also what, we, what I heard from women soldiers, they say it's not easy for us either because we're accused by our loved ones. Mm-hmm. Families, I'm not, I'm not good enough as a mother because I left my son. I'm not good enough as a wife. Uh, like I make my family cry. And this is, there is a lot of, you know, manipulation in this. And also, yeah, I mean, it's, it's clearly why it is problematic. So uh, we will see to now, I see many women gaining positions in the middle level. And I think for their disempowerment and emancipation in the middle level, will continue. It's been there for the last uh, eight years and will continue. But it seems to me that uh, at the higher level, actually, it becomes now even more difficult for women because of what we said before. It's martial time, it's law, uh, it's war, and it's when uh, you know men should protect and take care. Okay, some women can join the army, very good for them, mm-hmm. but, you know, better as Irina Vereshuk, just take care of evacuated population. So I think, I mean, we, we've Definitely have to acknowledge right these changes, um, but you know also notice where where there is still this not even glass ceiling. I don't know, it's a very thick glass ceiling. And what about the public discussion uh, right now in Ukraine on female soldiers and female participation in the resistance to Russian army? Mm-hmm. It's it's there. Uh, I mean, it's been there since. Uh, I don't know if you heard last year there was a scandal. Yeah, it was last year for the parade for the military parade. There was a special uh, group of uh, special. There was one column of women who were supposed to march, and uh, our Ministry of Defense bought them shoes and high heels. And uh, somebody luckily noticed that, and they were they, they were like, okay, uh, why why do the why is it supposed to wear high heels for the parade? If uh, yeah, if uh, actually all the other men they wear normal boots, and these women also uh, when when they are in the army they wear boots, they don't wear high heels. So there was this whole discussion, and then in the end they bought them uh, boots with lower heels, but still with heels. Um, but it, but you know uh, through through such things, uh, actually some public attention was brought to the fact that hello we have um, we have women in the army, we have women that are actually uh, going to the eastern part of Ukraine and fight, and uh, also this big uh, research project carried out by Tamara Martinuk, uh, Hanna Khatsenko a couple of others, Maria Berlinska, Invisible Battalion. And the first part was about uh, women soldiers and women veterans. And the second, more problematic in the sense of um, bringing it to public discussion and how it has been taken, was about sexual violence and sexual harassment in the army. And of course, now when... Uh, and, and the, this, this discussion was growing slowly because, of course, it is problematic because the figure of the soldier, of the defender, is sacred. So to blame them of doing such horrible things is, uh, 
you know, it's mm -hmm. politically difficult. People are afraid to talk about that. And now it becomes even worse because um, now uh, it's Russian men who are coming, uh, yeah. and I'm speaking about the discourse, right? The narrative. Yeah. These are Russian men who are coming and raping our women and killing our men. And so we, and, and you know, we have these pictures, the Russian soldiers at the work. Mm -hmm. hypothetically that carries a uh, washing machine from the house and then there is a Ukrainian soldier that brings out a cat from uh, from the like house that is destroyed by bombing which is a very clear just juxtaposition mm -hmm. and it's understandable but we have to of course acknowledge that whatever army it is whatever soldiers there is violence there is gender-based violence there is rape unfortunately mm -hmm. it happens even with uh, our soldiers, I'm sure. And there is now, I'm not sure if there is research on that. Mm -hmm. oh, I mean, I understand why this discussion won't be in in media. It shouldn't be there now for obvious reasons, but as scholars, this is something we have somehow, you know, to, we have to take this into consideration. We have to collect somehow this data because this is something that shouldn't be overlooked. Um, but I don't know, like, because, and I wanted to, to talk with you, like, to you about this. How do we treat this uh, as scholars, you know? Because on the one hand, we are scholars. On the other hand, we are representing our country. And now I can hardly imagine myself go, going to the conference elsewhere. And uh, while the war is still there and telling, I know there is rape in Ukrainian army. Like, that would be very problematic for, for my career and for my reputation. And, you know yeah it's 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 highly problematic and it's also a question for me first of all there is violence and sexual violence against women during the wartime it is underestimated and not that widely discussed and we are lacking the public vocabulary and approaches to discuss it yeah since we are lacking it somehow even in academic discourse it's enormously hard to talk about it during the wartime Talking about the violence, for instance, I'd like to, to, to notice the discussion on sexual violence and rapes uh, regarding the Russian army. Pro-Russian state mass media do not highlight this issue, so they're trying like, to hide it, to, to put it under the carpet, while more liberal and anti-state anti mass media like Medusa, they, they are trying to highlight it somehow. They bring it, they, they put... They publish articles and some kind of reportage on this. They're trying to bring it uh, into the public space. And there should be some discussion, but as far as I see, many public figures are lacking this language, how to discuss it. And uh, this brings us the memories of uh, Red, uh, Red, uh, Red uh, Army during the World War II, Still, it's highly problematic to discuss this issue in Russia. It's enormously hard, at least in public space. Um, I haven't been discussing it with my or with my colleagues, with scholars, but um, it's a disastrous, uh, disastrous discussion if you come with it to the public public space. Uh, and the other thing I was thinking while comprehending this Russian-Ukrainian war is. Uh, Alexievich and her work mm. on women uh, during World War II and what I'm really concerned with is how these women who participated in the war as, especially like from, from Ukrainian side who've been resisting the invasion who've been protecting their homeland how they will be treated and seen by uh, their co-citizens uh, because for me, it was uh, devastating to know that women who were resisting Nazis, uh, who've been fighting against and like who've been fighting for their homeland, have been treated badly. And many women have to hide that they've been at the military service somehow. Yet, from what you say, I hear that situation has changed. And it's hardly possible that uh, this will happen to Ukrainian nation later, that these women will be accused for some, some strange things or treated badly. How, how do you see it? Uh, so I think that uh, 
but it's of course uh, only based on the experience we had with the veterans coming from the eastern part of Ukraine and that war, or you know that that the, the war there was hybrid, so-called hybrid. And last year, there were um, less victims, and of course, well, Ukrainian media would always call this or almost always refer to this as a war with Russia. Still, people were used to that already. Um, but of course, we we had many veterans, uh, men and women coming back. And uh, on the one hand, you have this large uh, public approval. So the, the the larger discourse goes that these are all veterans are heroines, they are defenders, protectors. But um, just one month before uh, the, 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 the large-scale invasion, uh, I interviewed uh, a veteran and also a volunteer working with veterans and soldiers uh, in Dnipro. And they both, well, actually, and it was very um, sad interview because they said that uh, women go through so much discrimination once they're mm-hmm. back. Uh, it's extremely difficult to integrate uh, in the societal life because uh, they are expected to somehow pick up, you know, where they left and become very good mothers, very good wives, somehow earn money, but nobody wants to hire them. Mm-hmm. So uh, there is large stigma. And I, and I think it's... Um, quite, you know, like it's global from even what I see from Hollywood movies about veterans there. It seems like on the one hand, there is this honor on, on the paper and the media, like saying, all these are our heroes, but when it comes to regular employers, they don't want to hire veterans because they think that they have PTSR, they have some PTSDs, they have some, you know, some pro- problems with uh, mental stability that, uh, and, and, and so on and so that. Um, and the, there are no very good programs. I hope that with the help of the Western partners, it will change and there will be some programs to support uh, some additional education for people coming back to war, psychological, to provide psychological support. Because it was never happening uh, with, like, during all these eight years, they would have to look for such psychologists on their own and it's expensive uh, and we don't have enough that's another thing that uh, we would need uh, we don't have enough psychologists psychotherapists who are um, who have experience uh, with people with survivals of the war with people coming back uh, from from real fights so and you know and then and then there is this accusation of being like leaving your family so if a man leaves a family to go to fight, that's fine. If a woman, I, I, that is still, I mean, I think on a personal level, uh, it is not encouraged. Uh, it's probably the same as, you know, uh, telling your parents, I want to do a PhD, I don't want, don't want to have kids and get married. So it's, like, it's respected from the outside, but your family, most of the cases will still be like, I want to see grandkids. So yeah, uh, I'm trying. I'm trying to make a joke here, but of course, uh, uh, already what I heard then was was very very sad, and um, um, I hope it will be better now. And but I think it will be better if Western uh, partners will pressure our government to do that, because if again it is on the shoulders of the activists, volunteers, and a few NGOs, uh, then it's a drop in the sea because the the efforts you know cannot satisfy the demand. But I hope because of course Sweden, you know Finland, um, also I don't know Netherlands. So there are many countries who do Canada who do fund uh, such initiatives to support women. And I think now I hope that they will pressure our government to again to allocate funds um, and to to help these these women to you know. Uh, get a well-deserved, decent place in the society, get job, uh, education, whatever, psychological support, whatever they need. Um, but I don't think, I, I want also wanted to say that I think uh, many people don't think about, like, the society in general or the public, they don't think about that. So nobody thinks about, okay, now, now everybody posted pictures, thank you, military forces of Ukraine, you are our heroes, but... You know, uh, we, we send money to buy weapons, but I don't think there is this understanding that these people will come back. We need to, you know, make them feel welcome. We need to to treat them with respect. Uh, I don't know. I think it fades away. I don't know. I, I don't know if you do. You know how it even was in the Soviet Union, for example. Like why? Because 
I heard of many veterans forgotten uh, and, you know, we have these images for 9th of May when they are, okay, once I remember once, once a year we would go with my classmates uh, in the 90s still to bring some flowers and a postcard to the veterans. But, you know, most of the time, uh, like the state didn't care much, I think. So, yeah. Yeah, I see what you mean because veterans are usually treated in some strange way during the peaceful times. And I'm also thinking right now about women in Russian army. So they, there should be some women in Russian army and uh, women involved in the, uh, this war, uh, participating in the invasion. Still, they are invisible. So I haven't heard or met any mentioning of female soldiers. And it's really interesting how gendered this phenomenon still, even though we are living in this post, post, post-feminist era and in both Ukraine and Russia, post-socialist countries actually, where it was, promote, it was said that women question is solved. Uh, but we still see this very traditional gender role division so women are supposed to take care of family while men are protecting their homeland. Uh, men are soldiers while women are more in the sphere of private. It's visible, it's, it becomes apparent even through, through the clothing, through the shoes, as you say. It really says a lot about uh, how it is treated, how, how fe- fe- female soldiers, how female, like women are actually treated uh, right now. So my question is still whether there is any possibility to change this gender order, whether this war has potential to transform at least anything in terms of gender. I think that there is only, the potential is always there, but uh, it's only there, like it's there, but then the question who will who will use this potential. And again, uh, I see it as something that so far is on the shoulders of volunteers, uh, human rights activists, feminist activists, and scholars like like ourselves. So if we, you know, give it voice, if we push for this agenda, if we problematize things, then then you know, then there is some some progress because um, this is not something we have this uh, saying in uh, in Ukraine and then a chassis. It's not a good time for that. And of course, whenever it comes to such situation as wars and women's rights are then a chassis, you know, not a good time for them. It's like and, and usually it is used to say that, yeah, yeah, let's, let's first solve this situation, let's fight Russia, then we will speak of women's rights, uh, LGBTQ rights, whatever. Um, and this is, of course, very wrong, but uh, we, then, then we, we have to somehow, I don't know, carve, carve space for ourselves for that. I was just thinking because I was looking up the position of Irina Vereshuk and I opened Google looking for her. And I saw her picture next to the first lady, the, the wife of Vladimir Zelensky. Mm. And I was just thinking that uh, I actually, I personally think she's uh, the, the best first lady we, we had so far. Mm, and I'm not, um, Why? not a big fan. I never supported Zelensky, but I really like his wife because uh, she, well, I, I followed her, her social media. I listened to her interviews uh, because of her social media, it's not her product most probably, but the interview. And uh, uh, I, I like very much how, how she's calm and what she's doing to promote Ukrainian language abroad. So, for example, she made this initiative with uh, making Ukrainian audio guides in museums across the world. Or she uh, is really involved in this uh, accessible city, so creating the, making the building accessible for people with restricted mobility, or for people with disabilities. She works on uh, changing the um, uh, the food at schools uh, to make it healthier. But you see, like, and then I, I, I list all these questions, and this is such such typical questions for uh, for women in our society. And I know very well from her previous, like, from previous experience, uh, uh, because Zelensky was a public figure, showman for years, and Olena actually wrote a lot of texts uh, for. For the comedy show where he participated, she ran a lot of stuff. She's very educated, very smart, very self-confident woman who had to, as it happens with first ladies all the time, yes, she has to be moved backwards. And she got, because of being the, the wife of the president, she got so much hate 
online and media, for example, whatever she would dress, she would be always criticized for dressing something inappropriate, something ridiculous, even though she is she dresses all these very classic things. So I mean, I'm far from no in fashion, but you know, it's very, very classic, very, very careful. She would be like, horrible, this is so this is so boring. She is so tasted. Why couldn't they buy her normal dress? And she reacted uh, always very, very calm to that. Like, yeah, okay, people, people can criticize, but it's just what I want to say is that even, even there, you know, and um, makes me so upset because you have this brilliant mind apparently uh, who, who could have done much more, I'm sure but who is not given space for that. Uh, and I know that uh, a bit digressing that Hillary Clinton was hated and criticized a lot for interfering too much into politics when she was wife of Bill Clinton. And I always think if, if it were like 20 years later, you know, maybe maybe it's not him, but she who would have run for presidency being younger would have won. So, um, and, and but, but still I think, you know, and I remember we were going and uh, trying to protect under some posts just because it is so unfair you don't like your husband but instead you you criticize your dress and nobody cares what Zelensky wears and now he's praised for wearing this uh, simple t-shirt right uh, and there are so posts so many posts that oh he has this hockey t-shirt that costs like from the zoo it costs like know, ten dollars I, I I don't need to I don't have to go further you it's, 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 I yeah, I, I see what you mean. And it's peculiar for me how the same things are discussed in regard to men and women because of recent uh, memes on um, the wife of Medvedchuk, who has been uh, caught uh, by uh, Ukrainian authorities. And his wife was addressing uh, Zelensky as far as I understood. And she was wearing this plain black sweater and then there were like multiple pictures of her wearing different traditional uh, clothes depending to the president of which country she addresses and on the one hand it's funny on the other hand it's really saying a lot about how women and men are perceived and in this regard i'm thinking whether this traditional expectation regarding women's role and men's role has any potential to queer the existing gender order. Because I'm still thinking about these uh, funny exit polls done by uh, Russian uh, anti-state mass media in their Telegram channels about for whom you will vote if uh, elections are here right now. And on the one hand, it's quite illustrative that many would vote for uh, these female candidates like Shulman or Nabiulina, it's clearly this expectation of peace. It's definitely essentializing women, but mm -hmm. it seems there is some potential to rebuild the existing gender order. But but at least, you know, or not at least, but uh, uh, when I'm thinking that who, who, would, who would our Telegram channels propose to... Uh, to, to, to Ukrainians, because I can't recall a good... I mean, Schulman's phenomenon, right? It's it's quite interesting because yeah. I don't know any Ukrainian, uh, for example, or before that, uh, Russian public scholar, let's call it public scholar. Yeah. And she, she seems to have opinion on everything. At the same time, she uh, is extremely, like, I don't know, she probably reads a lot because she, like, yeah, she can cover whatever question and maybe... Uh, it's not always the, the deepest uh, coverage, or maybe sometimes she's biased, like everybody. Definitely. But Definitely you know, but case. still, it's like you you listen to her, and um, she kind of gives you this image of a knowledgeable person, expert in many things, and you like want to trust her. Um, I'm not sure about the about Nabiulina because I've never like followed her much. But when I think in Ukraine. Even this um, Oksana, what's uh, her name? Oksana Marchenka with Medvedchuk's mm -hmm. wife, she was a TV presenter, TV anchor. Always very, she was always very sexualized. So it's very, very deep decollete, cleavage, and uh, a lot of makeup. Uh, so all these, uh, many Ukrainian popular public figures are actually TV presenters or uh, talk show stars. And then, of course, he, even though we have actor who became a president, uh, probably they are not ones who I would love to to offer as an, as an alternative to him. We have the state prosecutor, though, uh, who who is a woman, but um, 
Uh, yeah, so but but uh, she's not too popular also because she wasn't very um, she was a bit reluctant to to pursue some anti-corruption cases. So, um, but but yeah, I think I wonder if we had some scholars, you know, these popular scholars like uh, like Schulman, then. I think maybe Ukrainians would be more excited about uh, a female candidate. But I mean, she is not a, I wouldn't say that she's a stereotypical woman, right? Even though, okay, she's more peaceful than uh, than Putin, definitely. But she, she doesn't use much makeup. She's very, like, a typical professor. So she's okay to be potential president of Ukraine, of, of Ukraine, Russia. Yeah, but the thing is that she's been accused for two commandant people. Uh, in various crisis uh, periods, and thus maybe it's not really popular opinion, but at least I've met it like a couple of times. And through this coming down, like regular people, she actually makes them less politicized. So when you are not that excited or concerned about uh, something, mm. you are not protesting, for instance, it's too much. And it's really about gender, how, how, how we trap these gender norms in these gender expectations and whatever position you take, trying like to turn it out in, in, in a different way, you're coming back to this gender issue that... Uh, I just thought about Tikhanovska also, you know, who kind of stood up to Lukashenko and... Uh, I don't know. She is. She's now somewhere in Europe, right? Uh, I know. But I think. So I think she wasn't efficient enough in a sense to to make all Belarusians stand up to you know against against Lukashenko. But at the same time, I I do believe that probably in Belarus, in Belarus also many people actually do support Lukashenko. The same as like many people do support Putin for for various reasons. But she was also this figure who was first blackmailed that they will do something to her children and to her husband. And then she changed her mind and she still decided to, you know, to, to go for it and to try to mobilize people. Mm, I don't know. What do you think of her? I think it's, it's one of the pieces of the picture which I can see and which I grasp, but which I cannot uh, comprehend at the whole yet. This need for female leader. And this need for female leader is clearly is the reaction towards this masculinist politics, which cannot be handled any longer by people. So people try to revert it absolutely, as far as I see. And it's really speaking, I wonder whether it's about uh, uh, feminism and feminist agenda per se. Mostly I see it as, as the reaction to, against. So that's, that's the point. So we are so against the current the current militaristic masculinist politics that we are ready to vote for female candidate and make a female candidate a president just to just to, to resist what happens just to resist the violence so women figures are seen uh, as a savior as a person who can help to resist uh, the state violence and i think it's quite illustrative and it provides some more more space, and while it doesn't contain so much femi fem feminist discourse on it, uh, it gives this actual space for women to come into to power and to change something to make the world um, different. And on this note, uh, finalizing our discussion today, uh, I would like to discuss with you the possibility of solidarity for women in Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus. I was reading a lot recently about Yugoslavian feminists and grassroots organizations working at the war period. And I was amazed how they identify themselves actually as, as Yugoslavian feminists. So it's, uh, it's not my uh, definition. But women from Bosnia, from Serbia, from Croatia, at that time, found it necessary to, to cooperate, to share information, to, to share materials, knowledge, uh, food, every, like all kinds of resources they had in order to resist the war and the politics and support each other. So I wonder if this, if this kind of solidarity is possible right now. Because I see many Russian feminists who are supporting their Ukrainian sisters, uh, not only feminists, but lay women who are really hard turned, torn for, for, for what's going on. 
and who would like to contribute somehow to peace building, to to support. But the question is whether uh, Ukrainian women are willing to engage in any type of cooperation right now. So, so what do you think about possibility of solidarity? Yeah, that's a that's a tough question because it's difficult to speak, uh, you know, on about all Ukrainian women mm-hmm. or Ukrainian feminists, even because we we have all these different movements. Uh, but I think one one thing that immediately came to my mind is, of course, what would be very important. I think there wouldn't be any any umbrella term like you know post-Soviet or Eastern European mm-hmm. feminists in this case because this is what particularly important mm-hmm. for for Ukrainian women now not to be uh, not to be equal or called you know sister nations brother nations I mm-hmm. think there is very much uh, resistance and um, aggression towards this for uh, for obvious reasons uh, I do see I do see much um, and 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 it is much easier even though Belarus also kind of uh, mm-hmm. is uh, semi in, in semi war with Ukraine now I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, is it still much easier for I see for Ukrainians to accept uh, solidarity coming from Belarus and from Russia, uh, but I think this is the same as but different example and looking vice versa as with uh, treatment of veterans. You know they are on the on the higher level seen as heroes, but uh, individual level is when people marginalize and don't like discriminate and so on. I think that here is vice versa. Here on the general level, you see, of course, like. Uh, uh, to the maximum level hatred, or at least reluctance to trust uh, Russian population and some Russian groups and organizations in general. But uh, if we look on the ground, we actually do see uh, much cooperation and solidarity and discussion and uh, like a podcast like ours, which is a tiny, tiny example. But uh, here um, in Slovenia, where I am, um, there is... um, like the, there is very tight work of all, all Russian-speaking groups, those who, of course, share, uh, share the same political position. And uh, I see also, like, through social media cooperation between LGBTQ organizations in Ukraine and Russia. So I think there is same space, of course, for, for feminists, uh, for women's rights activists, but my only, my, I only be being cautious because there is still sometimes from some groups there is this paternalistic or, you know, um, how to say big big sister attitude right to, towards uh, uh, Ukraine or Ukrainian language Ukrainian culture and um, so if if you know if, if this is taken in consideration with respect and understanding that we have now huge trauma which won't be processed that easily then of course and I think we also need to think you know further for this further cooperation and rebuilding our societies from inside and changing them and building some new kind of uh, relations because I mean, no, it would be very nice to say let's let's put a wall between our two countries and we'll never speak again. And you know, you live by yourself and we will live ourselves. But uh, realistically, no, it won't happen. People will be getting married. People will be moving back and forth for work. And uh, yeah, and in in one hundred years, uh, there will be I don't know new conflicts and new pieces and new things. So we we have to then. You know, now maybe there is a moment for us to think how how would be good for us to live together. What kind of society societies, right? We want to build, um, you know, and try to dig dig a little carve 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 our spaces. Uh, yeah, how does it sound? Yeah, it provides me some hope. So that there is space for solidarity, and definitely while talking about sisterhood. Uh, we should use this term as global feminists use sisterhood, and it's not like uh, this uh, elder sister, Russian Russian elder sister, and uh, younger like Ukrainian sister. It's definitely not not the case here, and we should be like really accurate and cautious with the language uh, we use. But- I'm nodding here. Our <laughs> listeners cannot see it, but I'm nodding. <laughs> Marina, thank you very much. We are running out of time and we have like to finish right now. So uh, thank you very much for this really inspiring talk and discussion. It really Thank you very much. Thought provoking. So yeah, I won't be able to sleep tonight because I have too many thoughts now. <laughs> so thank you. See you soon, I hope. Fingers crossed. Yeah. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye.